Good evening, comrades, and welcome to ASMRs. Hope you enjoyed the intro music. I can assure you I will not include anything that abrasive in the rest of the episode, to not ruin the mood. But I also wanted to share some leftist musicians, and hopefully I'll do more of that in the future. This evening, we are attempting something different. As we just finished reading the Communist Manifesto, I thought it would be quite fitting to have a little discussion about it, providing some context, updates, and perhaps even opinions. Due to this requiring me to, well, think and write, uh, this episode required more effort to put together, so it will likely be shorter than the previous ones. This will also mean a bit of a change of pace and mannerisms, as not all of my words will have been pre-written. If I am happy with how this turns out, I intend to make one of these type of episodes after finishing any book, or, or a chapter, or an essay. Anyway, with no further ado, let's get into the meat of things. So, first of all, we should probably talk about the authors of the Communist Manifesto. Of course, I'm no historian, and I haven't read any biographies of them, but I'll try to do at least like minimal background. So, both Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were Germans, born in Prussia around 1820. Uh, Marx was two years older than Engels and was born in 1818. Um, both men were philosophers, historians, and did both research and writing about economy and political theory. Engels, however, was also a businessman and this position allowed him to finance the philosophical works of Marx, while Marx himself was not very successful financially, despite writing enormous works on economy such as Das Kapital. In fact, uh, Marx lived on the verge of poverty for most of his life, and there are even anecdotes how he had to sell his last pair of trousers to afford food. Both Engels and Marx were part of young Hegelians in their early years, this was a group of German philosophers, influenced by the work of by then late philosopher Georg Wilhelm uh, Friedrich Hegel. We will not get into the philosophy of Hegel, as his writings are well known for their difficulty and obscurity. As far as our inventors of Marxism are, are concerned, uh, they had a rough start due to association with this group. Uh, Marx met Engels for the first time after falling out with the young Hegelians, uh, while believing that Engels was still part of them. Obviously, eventually they found they had more in common ideologically, and together produced arguably some of the most influential texts in history. I should also point out that Marx was uh, very influenced by Hegel's uh, philosophy, uh, especially dialectic materialism, as far as I know, but I really cannot provide more details on that, as I am not well read up on that subject. Now, the first thing to mention is neither Marx nor Engels invented, uh, you can't see it, but I'm doing air quotes, communism. Uh, you probably picked this up if you listened to my reading, or actually read the manifesto. It is made clear by the very first lines. A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism. So a specter was already there before Marx. Also, 
uh, where is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power? It seems that not only does communism predate Marx, but also the hurling of accusations of communism to everything you don't like predated Marx. Another interesting fact to mention is that Marx himself did not distinguish between socialism and communism, uh, which can also be noticed in Manifesto, as their terms are being used interchangeably. As far as I know, the distinction of the two was first introduced by Lenin, whose writings we are hopefully going to cover in future episodes. Now, what I want to talk about first are the Ten Commandments outlined by Marx in the Proletarians and Communists chapter. They are of course not commandments, but guidelines on how communism can be arrived at in an average first world capitalist nation. I feel understanding these help define what communism actually is, even if they don't quite attempt to describe it. Anyway, I will attempt to cover each of these. So, one. Abolition of property in land and application of all rents of land to public purposes. Now, this is probably the most famous point known and possibly exaggerated by even people who are not very familiar with communist theory. It usually gets shortened to abolition of private property, but that usually causes confusion, as it's not clear what private property means. Anyway, this point disallows owning land by anyone else than the state. In other words, it talks about nationalizing land and using it for the public good rather than private gain. And then two, a heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Uh, this point is pretty self-explanatory. In other words, it talks about tiered income tax which is already incorporated these days in a lot of countries all over the world. However, Marx likely intended for this tax to be much more extreme in higher levels to tackle severe income inequality seen in capitalist nations. Um, also, uh, this is a good hint that, it does not, that these points do not describe uh, communism, but more of a leading up to communism, since money would not exist in a communist society. 3. Abolition of all rights of inheritance. Uh, this is seemingly a point of contention, as it affects even working-class people. With the ever-inflating housing pricing, a common practice is to simply rely on inheritance to have a property to live in. Furthermore, the notion to provide for the family motivates people to accumulate wealth even after they have intentions they, after they have no intentions to spend it, and not being able to do so might be seen as a waste of their life efforts. However, we must consider that inheritance on a larger scale is one of the main ways wealth accumulation can perpetuate. You need to look no further than the existence of the Rothschilds and various royal families to see this. And while there may be concerns about having lesser starting capital for young individuals, we must consider that this change, just like the rest, does not occur in a vacuum. And it is expected that the society will be able to afford to provide everyone housing and other essential resources, so nobody has to rely on the family they are born into to decide their level of comfort. 4. Confiscation of the property of all immigrants and rebels. Well, my interpretation of this point is this. Confiscation of immigrant property means that the individuals are not meant to own property in countries they are not inhabiting, and rebels in this case would mean reactionaries, likely from the bourgeoisie class, attempting to keep their riches. 
I'm not sure why this is listed separately for abolition of property in point one. Um, five, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly. In short, this point talks about nationalizing the funds of the country as it attempts to move away from the money economy. Uh, currency would still be required for international trade, for example, so could not be done away with completely. Though I don't know how it would work in a fully communist nation. Uh, this step would likely be carried out after or during the introduction of the income tax, as income is monetary forms being phased out. 6. Centralization of the means of communication and transport in the hands of the state. This once again talks about nationalizing industries such as transport and communication. Uh, 7. Extensions of factories and instruments of production owned by the state. The bringing into cultivation of wastelands and the improvements of the soil generally in accordance with a common plan. So this talks about nationalized industry and farming. Otherwise, I think this also might imply that um, Marx would like to expand the agricultural sector of any given country that is transitioning into communism. Uh, this might make more sense if you look at the, the I don't know, economical industrial state uh, of Germany and Russia in 19th century when this was written, but I don't really have context on that. 8. Equalizability of all to labor. Establishment of industrial armies, especially for agriculture. The equal liability of all to labor means that all who can participate in labor should. This gets rid of positions that generate passive income that is not beneficial to society, such as landlords, stockholders, etc. That can make an investment which generates income with potentially no further action. This, the industrial armies are not elaborated on in the manifesto, but from other texts we can make out that they meant reserve armies that were made up of disadvantaged members of the proletariat who would be able to replace workers where needed and thus regulate wages and to supply labor for temporary projects. These projects might refer to rapid, rapid industrialization, um, which was like frequent back in the day and I mean like the Soviet Union uh, relied on that at its inception. The armies itself would be structured similarly to that of actual military, allowing for fast redeployments. 9. Combination of agriculture with manufacturing industries, gradual abolition of the distinction between town and country by a more equable distribution of the population over the country. So as labor is more generalized and nationalized, industries can be restructured to be more efficient as all aspects of it are owned by one entity, at least in theory. The distinction between town and country is usually emphasized by class distinction. Towns usually consist of educated and white-collar workers that are middle class. Country is usually where blue-collar work happens by an uneducated workforce. It is only logical that this distinction would erode with the ubiquity of labor and reduction in ability to accumulate wealth. Furthermore, the big gating feature of towns and cities uh, is the land and property prices, 
And that would become a non-issue once, well, privatization is not a non-issue. 10. Free education for all children in public schools. Abolition of children's factory labor in its present form. Combination of education with industrial production. So, fortunately, half of these steps have already been achieved in the first world. Um, the abolition of child labor was in big part done by socialists of the time, uh, as along with other like worker conditions. Um, but that's a tangent. Uh, public schools uh, could be even more accessible and still require funds that not everyone has in some countries, but otherwise these some of these are quite achieved. Now, combination of education with industrial production can be interpreted in many ways. Uh, we sort of have this under capitalism in the form of professional schools that educate students to prepare them directly for a role in industry, or at least that is how I interpret this point. Of course, it is hard to imagine another alternative that does not exist, but might be that Marx meant something entirely different. Once again, I am not a scholar. Now, a few things to address about these steps. Um, first and foremost, these steps seem to assume the existence of a state, as they talk about nationalizing various resources. However, the modern definition of communism does not include the state at all. On the contrary, communism involves the abolition of class, money, and state. Um, the explanation of this discrepancy in my belief is this. Uh, Marx outlined here not the features of communism, but the steps of achieving it, or in other words, a transitionary period. Uh, some readers of Manifesto um, assumed that due to these steps, Marx was in fact a statist. And indeed, I made this mistake myself the first time I read it. And I think it can still be argued that if Marx imagined um, uh, paving way for communism with uh, the state, he could still be interpreted as a statist. But um, there is a great video by Janusz Czeka about this. Uh, it's on YouTube, uh, titled simply Marx was not a statist. And it goes in depth with uh, explaining why he would not be a statist. Uh, he tackles the Communist Manifesto and exactly these uh, 10 uh, points. Uh, also brings up some other literature and it's just a very interesting video, uh, well worth a watch. And I will try to include the link to this in the description of the episode. Now, moving on to how Marx actually did define communism in the Manifesto. Um, these features come in the form of abolition rather than introduction of constructs. Um, for instance, the most obvious and touched upon earlier is the abolition of all property. In a communist society, all previously private resources would be accessed freely by anyone who needed them. Other very important abolition is the abolition of classes. As Marx pointed out in several parts of the manifesto, the classes of the proletariat and the bourgeoisie are defined by their conflict with each other. Marx also points out that some form of the conflict has been a constant in history. As long as a class divide exists, the conflict exists, and exploitation is perpetuated by the ruling class. 
Thus, classes simply cannot exist if we are to achieve communism. Um, Marx also advocates for the abolition of nationality, arguing that it is not true that people share most commonalities with members of the same nation, but rather with those in the same class as themselves. Therefore, Marx sees just one meaningful nation, the nation of the proletarian. Uh, this might be a contentious point for some, especially from smaller countries seeing this as an erosion of national traditions. However, I believe that this erosion is happening currently at a much bigger scale under capitalism, with the globalized economy and such, like McDonald's at every corner, etc. Uh, in fact, uh, Marxist statements don't necessarily attack tradition, but identifying with country as an entity rather than the culture, as, as I mentioned. So you can still appreciate your own culture, but just not attribute it to a nation. In fact, Marxist statements don't necessarily attack tradition, but identifying with country as an entity, a culture. Uh, a controversial attack on culture comes with Marx's critique on religion. Firstly, he simply does not recognize arguments from religion as valid critique on all his proposals, and explicitly states this in the manifesto. However, Marx also provides an explanation on why he released this. Namely, he categorically disagrees with the notion that the material conditions do not affect the belief system and norms uh, believed by people. This is the presupposition required by religion, as most are based around truth that transcend time and age. Um, this is exemplified by holy texts like the Quran or the Holy Bible, uh, which usually are thousands of years old. Uh, I don't believe this is a very controversial point by Marx. Uh, a separation of church and state is a prevalent idea in contemporary politics, and while being harsh in the way he phrased it, I do not think Marx is actually advocating for destruction of religion, only that it should not interfere in economics and uh, politics and when trying to decide what is to be done. Marx also mentions the abolishing of the family. Um, this, I believe, is the most controversially sounding idea, at least from the outset. However, Marx explained that this abolition is due to the fact that capitalism has already boiled down the family unit to that of an economical relation, which, additionally, is used to objectify women. In fact, what I find quite hilarious, because I am immature, uh, Marx talks about upper-class men swapping wives and perverting the family model, which, while quite lewd, is a legitimate point. Marx also elaborates how the family unit objectifies women, and the bourgeoisie are scared uh, uh, that the abolition of the family would create a society of women. And Marx responds that the society has already existed since time immemorial. I love that part. Uh, I would call this statement somewhat feminist, uh, just so I can say that this exemplifies the concept of intersectionality, which allows me to go on and talk about what intersectionality is. To be honest, this is my just my cue to make a tangent that I was just thinking about while reading it. It not necessarily correlates with what's in the manifest. 
but basically intersectionality is the idea of combining movements with similar goals and tackling all related goals so that nobody is left out. Um, for example, when marching for women's rights, you must also include women of color, uh, gay women, trans women, etc. As otherwise, you are not actually fighting for women's rights, but for specific subgroups within women. Uh, this might be harder to achieve in some scenarios, for example, due to existence of TERFs, the fight for LGBTQ plus rights is made harder, and it's hard to have an intersection with them. Not that I am advising that you should, as TERFs are a bit, yikes, um, but that's a topic for another time. But also, uh, if done successfully, it increases the size and voice of the cause, and of course makes the cause more equal and worth fighting for. And this is very important in modern leftist circles, as racial injustices and discrimination based on sexuality uh, or gender identity are seen to be part of the capitalist system, or at least uh, these um, prejudices uh, help perpetuate the system. Now, back from that tangent, I also wanted to mention Marx's thoughts on the opposing economical system, that is, of course, capitalism. Uh, first of all, I wanted to point out that Marx did give capitalism credit where it was due for its speed and efficiency, as illustrated, as illustrated by this quote. The bourgeoisie, during its rule of scarce 100 years, has created more massive and more colossal productive forces than have all preceding generations together. Subjection of nature's forces to man, machinery, application of chemistry to industry and agriculture, steam navigation, railways, electric telegraphs, clearing of whole continents for cultivation, canalization of rivers, whole populations conjured out of the ground. What earlier century had even a presentiment that such productive forces slumbered in the lap of social labor. Marx uh, does not argue for communism as an alternative to capitalism in general at all times. He argues for communism specifically and exactly because capitalism has happened and paved the way for it. And in his belief, uh, capitalism has run its course. He predicted that capitalist mode of production was unsustainable in the long run, and that perpetual collapse was inbuilt into the model itself. To quote uh, once again, in these crises there breaks out an epidemic that, in all earlier epochs, would have seemed an absurdity, the epidemic of overproduction. Society suddenly finds itself put back into a state of momentary barbarism, it appears as if a famine, a universal war of devastation had cut off supply to every means of subsistence. And why? Because there is too much civilization, too much means of subsistence, too much industry, too much commerce. And now, almost 200 years later, we are still feeling these perpetual crises. Also, this was exemplified by COVID-19 pandemic. Um, where farmers had to dump tons of pro produce instead of giving it away, 
um, apparently to keep the market from crashing, which would be inimaginable in a communist system. Now, lastly, uh, Marx believes that for capitalism to exist, it has to call into existence the weapon that can destroy it, namely the proletariat. Um, this is self-evident because without the working class, the gears of capitalism would just stop turning. But by the structuring of capitalism, there must be a higher class that exploits these workers by paying a fraction of their labor's value and taking the surplus value for themselves. Then inequality increases, workers get shafted more and more, until finally, historically, a revolution occurs. Uh, Marx uh, frequently mentioned, even in the Communist Manifesto, uh, that this is basically how feudalism was destroyed, um, and capitalism, of course, rose out of it, but now um, capitalism is itself uh, doing the same, um, creating the same disparity that will lead to its own collapse. And that is exactly what Marx outlines in the Communist Manifesto. So this covers most of the things I wanted to mention when talking about the Communist Manifesto. Well, of course, there is always more to be said, especially if you take into account context from other literature. I tried to do that as little as possible. Of course, I wanted to elaborate some points, so I dug up some relevant stuff. But since I haven't read much other literature, I didn't want, want to get too deep into it. And of course, this is supposed to be a discussion of the Communist Manifesto on its own. Um, so next week, um, we should return to the form of a simple reading. Um, it's most likely going to be Lenin, uh, what is to be done, unless I change my mind. Uh, it will, I think, follow nicely from, kind of chronologically from Marx, as Lenin picked up the Marxist ideology, uh, one of the first like significant historical figures to do so. Um, yep, and I did not want to get into even bulkier text by Marx. I I believe um, oh, Lenin's uh, writing is a bit shorter, uh, might be even simpler than, for example, Das Kapital, which is not is not essentially a leftist uh, book uh, or tome, but more of a economical uh, economical work, um, which gets really technical. Of course, there's also Grandrisse, or I butchered that. Probably I cannot speak German, um, but yeah, I just I think it's gonna be Lenin. I might change my mind. But anyway, um, thank you for tuning in tonight, and goodbye, comrades. Until next time.